I'll throw some doozies on you all. See how you can make them interesting. <laughs> yeah. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Howdy, howdy, everyone, and welcome to Beam Radio. My name is Alex Quidmos, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, on our panel, we have Bruce Tate. Hi, from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And everyone else is out today. But don't worry, we're still going to have a blast because we have an amazing guest today. But before we introduce our guest, let's give a shout out to our sponsors. Uh, Underyord.io. I'm not sure what's going on with Lars. Do you have any idea, Bruce, if he can give, uh, if he can give us any updates on his behalf? He's just always amazing. Uh, He's just always you amazing. Should, you, should, always, you should work with him uh, if you get a chance to. Yeah, always top of Hacker News. That's, that's Lars. And then we also have Groxio.io. What's happening in Groxio land, Bruce? Yeah, so we have been trying to roll through our, our core courses again. So we've refreshed LiveView again. <laughs> we've refreshed OTP, and we're refreshing Elixir right now. Elixir is going to have about eight times the content that it did. The other thing that we're doing is starting to weave projects in, and this particular one is Tetris. And I have some ideas for, uh, for Tetris and Livebook. Tetris and live view. And, um, but so far we've just been doing the SVG and Elixir version. just so you get a sense of visualizing things as you, um, as you work through the exercises. So that's been a lot of fun. That sounds pretty cool. Building a Tetris clone in live view. That is, that's pretty cool. Yeah. I have uh, this kind of dark idea of doing a, um, like a dirty Tetris kind of right. And so you could be playing with a lot of different people. And you could move their blocks down um, or you could, you know, give them a bunch of the wrong shapes in a row or, or things like that. I think that that might be pretty interesting, but oh, we'll see how really that cool. goes. Yeah, cool. Well, I'm excited to see that on Twitter. I'm sure we'll be posting some teasers here and there. Awesome. All right, well, let's move on to our guest. I feel like he doesn't need an introduction, but I'll give him one anyways. The amazing Frank Hunleth. How's it going, Frank? Hey, it's good to be here. It's going well. Nice, nice. So for those who don't know who Frank is, he is the creator of the Nerves Project, and he shepherds it along, and he gives us some amazing updates whenever new Raspberry Pis come out, or orange pies, or mango pies. How many pies do we have, Frank? A billion. A billion pies. <laughs> All the pies. Yeah. You can never have too much pie. <laughs> cool. So you want to... Tell us how you got into Elixir and uh, you know, how you find yourself working on nerves for those who yeah, don't know so the story. I'll, uh, I'll try to give you the short version. Um, my Elixir story doesn't start with Elixir. It starts with Erlang. And I had been working in telco, datacom. And uh, at some point, I saw that the Beam had implemented everything that I had tried to implement and more and like a million times better. So I was totally entranced with it. And the challenge that I had was getting to use it in a real project. And nerves grew out of that was my field, my projects were all embedded. Loading the beam on embedded at the time was a little bit tricky and built nerves out of that or started nerves out of that. Then where did Elixir come in? Well, the Elixir community, when it got started, um, several people really contributed a lot um, to, to nerves at the beginning. It was super fun working with a lot of people in the beginning. So I just switched and started coding everything in Elixir. Um, you can still use Erlang, everything that that works fine, but that uh, the community got here and I've loved it ever since. 
Yeah, I'm not very good at it, but gosh, I think that when you start experimenting with hardware, things kind of come alive. Uh, I, I've just loved the the little projects we, that we've gotten to to see. So, what are some of the coolest things that you've seen at the Nerves Meetup? Oh my gosh, I think well, you know, picking coolest things, it's, it, it's always tough to say coolest, but I think that the big thing that surprises me about about Nerves users is I had this whole idea when I was doing that, that most of the projects would kind of be in similar fields like I was doing, like different gateway kind of devices or data transfer devices and stuff like this. And then you find out that people are using it for farming. So, you know, we always talk about all the farming. There's more than just FarmBot for farming with the Nerves, which was totally unexpected. Um, I got into boating. It's gotten into different industrial um, factories running some pieces of the line. So right now, um, as for Nerves Meetup, it's, you know, it's really kind of hard. There's like the, uh, you know, AI controlled boats, you know, that that uh, got talked about at one time that where Nerves was a little piece of that. Um, I think that, I think, you know, if I were to answer, it's the variety of stuff that, that I get to see. You know, it's just fun seeing how people use the platform in unexpected ways and that it actually can be used. Like people can actually pull this piece of code, use the beam, you know, write some elixir and get uh, something to work. Yeah. And I think that there was a, an interesting moment for me when, um, when we were on the great loop and, um, you know, this was a boat trip that I took and visited Frank along the way. And, um, you know, we were working through this, this, this class that we were going to teach at one of the conferences. And, um, and we were publishing this, this raspberry Pi book with a binary clock and we were trying to make these uh these boards work and um every now and then i would get this shipment from frank i don't know if you know this alex but i would get this shipment from from frank and it would be like the latest run of binary clock um you know parts and i would plug them in on the boat and you know i would be just kind of hacking and and all i needed was my my little usb cable um, the little Raspberry Raspberry Pi, um, I think that um, I even left without them, and Frank hooked me up with some, and um, and I was able to kind of manipulate them. And I was going through my pictures yesterday, and Maggie says, "What is that? Is that a clock? That's not your clock." And I said, "You've seen this, Maggie, right?" And so, but it was kind of cool to to kind of work our way around the loop then. Um, then wind up in um, in you know, right right outside of, of Maryland, and um, and to to see you guys with with Alexis project, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what that project was? Right. So so the project you're talking about is the one Alexa and I worked on quite a bit. Um, so the whole idea was to get you all something simple um, and uh, forget. Oh. We got to have Elixir in this somehow and nerves and we had to have lights. So we took the binary clock project and we're like, oh, how hard could it be, right? To, to make, to take a little map of the US, put lights at various places where um, you and Maggie were stopping and then, and then have uh, some sort of interface to control it. And, and Alexa was just like, oh, I got, I got the live view part and stuff like that. And uh, I'll help with the design. Dad, you know, you let's just, you, you, help, you do the board part and, you know, get me started and I got it. So, um, that's over 
over some months of waiting for things to be done, we designed the custom board with the little lights. That if you imagine the eastern part of the U.S., you can kind of and the, the boat trip loop that lights. There are little LEDs at every point, so you can so. Um, so that's on the front, and on the back, there's a little Raspberry Pi that plugs in and drives a little chip that we used in the binary clock book um, to to uh, control the lights. And then eventually, through some coding and through solving a couple mistakes, uh, uh, Alexa got it working. Where uh, well, by the time you all made it up to Maryland, we could show it off. That's kind of cool. Um... It was way cool. It's one. It's still one of the best gifts that I've ever been given, right? Because it's um, kind of hits all my soft spots. The um, you know the the boat trip, of course, and then um, you know working with Alexa um, over such a such a long period of time, and how far that she has come, the problems that she can attack. Um, it's it, that was really fantastic. I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Um, I'd like to ask you what's going on in general in the Internet of Things. So how have things changed since you joined the Elixir community and started working with the tools? Yeah, so, oh, shoot, that's, that's such a big question, right? Um, IoT community is huge. Um, so I, I guess I can talk about things that I follow a little bit more closely. So my world um, is mostly microprocessor-based world. So so I still use microcontrollers, just at a high level, microcontrollers are very are much less capable chips, but they do have some really interesting features for controlling hardware for lower power things, um, hard real-time things. I mostly am focused in the in in the uh, the world where we can run the beam on it and the kinds of projects there. Um, so in in that world, a lot of the topics are coming up is how do I apply different um, some of the AI machine learning things to those processors. Um, how do I use that? Um, another one, it, which is really has been big and big for me is how do I use RISC-V? So it's a different architecture that just happens to have a lot of uh, momentum behind it. Um, RISC-V is pretty interesting for a few reasons, um, mostly because it's an open source, more of an open source architecture than ARM. The um, I'd say after that, um, so those are, those are like the big categories that I'm following. Then there is a set of a bunch of littler categories <laughs> that, that I'm following and that they're more Elixir beam centric. One is, uh, um, the work on the 32 bit arm jit for an Erlang. So, so the, the sad or interesting thing, um, depending on how you look about it, about embed devices that for power constraints or what you can buy or whatever reason, they're much lower power, lower um, capability than like what people use on servers. So having a little bit more headroom to run more code at the edge is interesting. And for better or worse, 32-bit ARM dominates a lot of what we do. So that, that works definitely interesting. And that's the Erlang Ecosystem Foundation's working on that. Um, yeah. So on the on the supply side, how how much has COVID um, kind of ironed out? Have have things kind of settled down yet, or uh, are um, are we still seeing supply side problems? Oh yeah, supply chain. Yeah, I 
I never want to say it's getting better when I can't buy the Raspberry Pi I want to buy. But as from my work um, perspective, it, things definitely seem better now than they did a year ago. Um, I really, really hope this continues. This was this was pretty painful over the past, I don't know, four years or so with getting parts. Um, and uh, I think on one side, it generated a lot of Raspberry Pi clones, right? Per your comment at the beginning about how many Pis can you have, basically everyone who could generate some kind of hardware that was somewhat similar to the Raspberry Pi did. Yeah, I think uh, I think every once in a while on the Elixir forums, you answer a post, uh, Frank, where someone's looking for like a sensor from our uh, weather station book that we actually. The funny thing is, all the authors of that book are on this <laughs> on this yeah. episode right now. But uh, yeah, I think every once in a while you you chime in and you point somebody into a into a direction where they can get an alternative chip uh, to help them out, which is which is nice, but. Kind of unfortunate that we still can't get those original chips that we wrote the book with. Oh yeah, um, and and there's sometimes there are new ones now. It's like the world changes. I guess that's another theme that I think we we were going to talk about is just how the world changes on and how nerves has to keep up. On yeah, for sure. So many things. I'm gonna if you can. I I love diving into these technical bits. So you said that uh, yeah, machine learning for the IO, IoT space is uh, you know is taking off. Is that like, are they actually doing and running the models on the Raspberry Pis themselves, or are they kind of using the Raspberry Pi as like a like a delegation mechanism, right. so, reaching out to the server for for you know running the models and whatnot? Yes, both. I feel like right now there's lots of exploration of options, and the I think the core that brought it is just running the inference on there. So all the all the learning would be on beefy computers, and then this would then you download some model that uh, you already had to do the, run the inference locally just because you were doing some video processing and you didn't want to ship the whole stream up, right? That's that kind of the original thing. But I really feel there's lots of experimentation on now. And um, the people that I know doing the most of it are all using NVIDIA-based embedded devices um, that have like the, lots of, like G, lots of GPU power on them locally that... Uh, um, so not exactly where nerves targets, you can still use nerves on these devices, but at the situ right now, um, the people using Elixir on those devices are not using nerves just due to the amount of infrastructure, just you need to run those GPUs. Um, but the hope is in the future that as some of this stuff solidifies, we can start, uh, running it on, um, less complicated devices. Maybe that's the right word for this. Uh, are you talking about the, was the NVIDIA Jetson? Yeah, the Jetson. Kits? Yeah. And oh, yes. Okay. So Nerves doesn't officially support Jetson yet, right? Um, No, not officially. No. So people oh, have gotten okay. it to work on it, but I would suggest it's probably one of those pieces of hardware that you want to get your software from NVIDIA on due to mm -hmm. the amount of software to exercise their stack. Yeah, I was, I was gonna say the last time I ran CUDA on my Linux box, I was in for a, a, quite a bit of pain. Like the frame buffer would always freeze while, while uh, like a CUDA program was running. So and that, I mean, that's I, an officially I mean, it's know, supported the fun of, outlet. So. The fun of running on the bleeding edge, right? <laughs> so yeah. you get to experience all these cuts that uh, 
you know, you might miss out on, <laughs> depending on whether you like it or not. Gotcha. So how are you seeing, because I mean, you know, year over year, we're getting better and better hardware. I think the Raspberry Pi 5 was announced was like a few weeks ago now. I mean, kind of what's, what's the threshold now for what you can accomplish on the edge with, with Raspberry Pis or, you know, some of these other derivatives of hardware? Like it, it's going up year over year. I mean, so it's going how... up. It's, I mean, they're trade-offs, right? Even before the Raspberry Pi 5, um, there was what are, what I consider still are embedded systems, but they had these like crazy graphics cards on them and they, you know, 100 watt power supplies being um, powered off of diesel engines, right? So it's like, like there, there's, there's like a spectrum of what you want to accomplish. And I think the, the sweet spot where I really like are the ones that, you know, are, are not, you know, the, the few watt range, right? It's like maybe, mm-hmm. maybe, it has a chance of running on battery if you really work at it, but it's not like something that needs a lot of active cooling and whatnot. And I think that where I would really hope these things go is to somehow figure out like, what are the exact pieces that you need to do the interesting use cases in machine learning and build those into the main chips that you put on these. So it's not like you need to have like a big honking GPU like stuck on the side or um, some external AI machine learning accelerator that these these uh, parts are get more integrated together. So someone making a new device can, can go say, oh, I like this SOC, like the Raspberry Pi has Broadcom SOC and others choose from different vendors that you can just say, I want this one. And, oh yeah, there's a little part that comes inside this, just like a lot of other things that these SOCs know how to do. And it's machine learning oriented and I can access it with my code and oh boy, I'm in Elixir land, I can use NX and all of a sudden, the, all my machine learning work that I've been working on in NX is just, I have another backend that targets that one. And it works, and, and I can run this thing off of the battery power, and no big deal. That's where I, that's where I wanted to go. I, 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 there are definitely glimmers of hope, but nothing like right off the shelf that I can point to. Can you go into some of those glimmers of hope? The glimmer of hope is, is that this... Um, Google has this Coral machine learning accelerator. What you do is you basically plug in over, um, and people using it with Nerf plug in over USB, but that's not the only way to use it. And you have some model that if you're using TensorFlow Lite, you can just export over to it and it does the inference pieces. And it's, if, if you look at what the Coral accelerators look like, they're, they're kind of small. Uh, they don't get super hot or use a lot of current to run. So, but it's an external thing and you have to buy this thing. And these things are actually hard to buy too sometimes. I don't know how they are lately, but uh, there's definitely supply chain pressure on them when I was uh, using them a while ago. Which makes all the sense in the world, right? <laughs> oh yeah. I, I, I could totally imagine that they're still hard to buy, um, but they've been around for a little bit. So this is, this is not exactly new tech as like tech goes. I'm, um, it's feels like, and I feel like I probably am ignorant on like some things that are going inside these companies making the SOCs that there's probably more stuff going on than what's been announced publicly. This seems like a really good direction to go. And I think the, the lagging part is just getting the software pieces and make them not terribly difficult to use. 
So there's some machine learning use cases that you think are more in range short term with, with Elixir, like, um, I don't know, maybe voice or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, voice is, is the interesting one there. Um, I have been very curious to see, so I haven't personally done work on voice, but it, um, it does seem like one of the pieces that probably would fit early on. That's that'd be interesting to a large group of people. I think from the nerf side, um, to make it generally available, we um, have to get some good mic support and get the kind of the glue in place to feed the the models that uh, people are using. So, is the Coral um, uh, add-on module is that something that's supported via uh, nerves, or is it, it's kind of Okay, this is where it's it's nice to be a part of the Elixir ecosystem, right? So, so did I do any work on it? No, but Coco Shu did, and and they did it with their um, TF Lite um, library for our Elixir. So, yes, you can access it through this. Okay, I think Coco also worked on the uh, OpenCV bindings, right? Yep. Yep, eVision. Yeah, they're like they're super prolific. Nice. So I feel like we need to take advantage of of having you on the show to let our our listeners know what's going on with nerves. Um, you want to give us the the quick dump? <laughs> what's happening? Yep. That's that's important to to the nerves community. What's happening is that there's a lot of stuff to keep up with the world right now happening. Explain this kind of feels like a, a big, long, windy yak shave. But uh, I mean, the, the thing when you have these open source projects that use a lot of dependencies, like NERVS is tightly coupled to the Linux kernel and a lot of open source libraries, is that uh, those libraries move on and NERVS has to adapt. Um, sometimes you want to take advantage of, like sometimes, like for me, I want to do something for RISC-V. Like there are interesting RISC-V use cases um, RISC V just happens to be ble bleeding edge, and once you get bleeding edge, people use bleeding edge libraries, and then you get the lack yak shade that goes all the way back, and you're like, why am I even doing this thing? Um, so the uh, the most interesting part of this comes down to OpenSSL three. <laughs> so it's crazy that how we got to OpenSSL, but suffice it to say. NERVS has been on OpenSSL 1.1.1, like literally everyone in the world. And uh, that's a happy place for NERVS. There are a lot of dependencies on NERVS, lots that, that people may not recognize. For example, for these for large deployments, NERVS will often have, NERVS Vice will have uh, these cryptographic chips to handle authentication with different servers. If, you, if you've seen this in NERVS, you we reference to one variety of this as the NERVS key, but uh, if you haven't, it's like um, um, what these things do is they just hold like a secret key and they hold it in a way that makes it very hard to reverse engineer. And But big picture is OpenSSL has to be modified to route all the, all the authentication through this little chip and back. And the way they did this, of course, from OpenSSL 1 to 3 changed and among other things, and there are ramifications all over the place. So we were stuck on this and it was holding everything back. So I think I just talked like tons on this thing, but at any rate, the, the end of the story is, is that Erlang OTP 
team fixed like all problems with um, dealing with OpenSSL three. In fact, some they fixed some subtle ones that impact nerves that I was not expecting to be fixed. So I, in my back of my brain, I had I'm working on a really boring project that no one's going to care about for a month, and uh, to be able to get past this, and it just worked. So what did unblock? Um, so I should say it just worked. It's good in OTP twenty six point two, which as we're recording where it hasn't been released yet, but uh, if you want to get it to work, all you have to do is patch the latest OTP. So this is this is new. Unblock that, unblocked um, build root, which is another piece, upgrading build root, which it up, updated to open SSL three. It unblocked GCC version, a version of GCC version upgrade <laughs> that uh, I was looking at for risk five. Um, and uh, that, will unblock unblock some use of nerves on that's that's been proposed on FPGAs using the risk 5 32 bit risk 5 cores with this thing called um um vex risk 5 which some people may know about super interesting random topic uh, but as you can see as I go through this there's like all this unblocking that occurs and and if it's not done um all of a sudden nerves get stuck in the past and we can't do these things. And this this also unblocks, you know, machine learning stuff is another bleeding edge thing. So when people put these library um, constraints on stuff like OpenSSL3 or any of these newer things, like it just propagates down and all of a sudden you're stuck and you didn't even mean to be stuck, but the world moved. And um, at the moment, I'm like quite excited as you might be able to tell because I really thought that I had a couple of months of uh, of work on my hands that would be unappreciated. It totally, it, no one would see this stuff. So I'm right now as we record, lots of updates are getting pushed through nerves. Um, hopefully, all behind the scenes that nobody notices because this, the platform basically works. But if you're on one of these bleeding edge use cases, um, it should make you a little happier that uh, you don't have to do some code gym gymnastics to Port something that you're working on. We definitely appreciate what you're doing, Frank. So don't worry, it doesn't go unappreciated. <laughs> That's all right. I think it's part of just maintaining open source projects. There's just like a certain percentage of just sweat that you have to put in that you actually kind of don't want anyone to see because when people see this, this is where they hit these roadblocks that cause them to have to abandon a project or change a technology or something. That's you know, may be easy for me to get past, but like is like something in the bowels of the Linux kernel or something like that. That's just like a non-starter. So you just like pick to use some other system to to solve your problem because sorting through Linux kernel source just is about as fun as it sounds to the group of people that probably <laughs> have those feelings. So it sounds like there's some light at the end of the tunnel here. So you got oh, OpenSSL there's total light. three. Yeah. Uh, I was gonna ask what happened OpenSSL two. I haven't been keeping up. This uh, is like a Python two to three. Uh, oh, they, they skipped two. Okay. Straight. I think there's actually a story, and I think I knew the story. I I mean, OpenSSL three has been like in, in existence for a really, really, really long time. So I, at some sense, I kind of feel like I pushed. Um, I hung on to OpenSSL 111 for about as long as humanly possible 
with with nerves. Um, but I cannot I, I cannot undersell how happy I am not to have to put in this work. Like end of twenty twenty three. This is like this is like the best gift when you can actually concentrate on interesting problems and uh you know more so than just keeping up with um dependency updates that are brutally complicated. Especially one like OpenSSL, where if for everyone who hasn't worked with the, the lower level crypto um, code, like the feedback that you get from this is yes or no. And it's almost always no when you debug this stuff. And it's no, and you're not told why <laughs> it's no, because that's a feature. So so you started to mention you got to, you got to work on the exciting stuff. So let's yes. talk about what are the things that are people are going to be really excited about with, with NERFs? Well, I think the most beneficial things, uh, it's really hard for me to characterize excitement for something, but the most beneficial things are, um, I'm getting a lot of experience from um, the work that I do at SmartRent with our devices at scale, flowing that back into the open source world. So the, this is kind of like the Chrome plating, but it's the kind of like the Chrome plating for um, having really robust fleet deployments of lots of devices. And this stuff has ramifications of, for even just like small things. Like my, we have at, at my company, we have like huge costs to go back into um, in, in fixed devices there in the field. So just to give some context, we install a whole lot of our devices inside apartments and um, to access them usually means going inside a tenant's unit, scheduling some time to go in their unit and, uh, you know, hanging out for a little bit while debug happens. Obviously, this is something that we want to not do <laughs> for many reasons. It's costly <laughs> to us. It's, it's very uncomfortable to the tenants. I mean, you could imagine. I, I don't think I need to explain more. It's very much that we want these devices to be completely robust, reliable, and be able to recover from a lot of things that the world has to throw at them, um, especially in terms of like, like power, internet connectivity, whatnot. So these things flow through core pieces of nerves and being able to get some of those pieces back into the open source world for other projects to benefit from is uh, a place where that excites me a lot. So this is actually segueing to well, what's coming up? When am I going to talk a whole lot about this? This is Code Beam in March. Uh, this is my goal is to talk a whole lot about different areas, give a lot more detail in some of the pieces that uh, we're using, and to give you all hints or you know of where this is. This is everything from like low level stuff or like how do you? Uh, there's a feature called Heart in Erlang. I think everyone knows and and. And so the heart basically monitors the beam. Says beam, are you okay? Yay, go on. Um, if you're if the beam's not okay, like it's hung, then in our case it's reboot the device. You could imagine. Uh, it, in other cases, it'd just be restart the beam. But uh, um, there's a lot more to like monitoring the health of your device for whether you're okay or not, and then what um, remediation you have when things don't go okay. And to some level, rebooting the device is like the total. Um, total fix to everything, but at the same time, rebooting the device that you have is not ex is sometimes service impacting. So if there are lesser ways of remediating, 
it's better. But it's like, how do those things hook together? How do you, um, how do you think about these concepts in a larger deployment? And, and one thing that a lot of people using nerves that I see, they don't really take full advantage of this. And the reason is it's really hard to get right. There's some definitely rough edges where uh, just asking whether you're healthy can be can be uh, um, way harder than it looks. Like I'm unhealthy and then reboot happens. Like sometimes you can make your system much less reliable through this code. And uh, oh, um, the plan is to open source some of more of what we use to um, protect against good intentions going wrong um, in the beam. And, and then the other side of this is just monitoring monitoring and being able to figure out what happened when something weird comes up in the field is, is of course, very interesting and uh, necessary. So this is interesting, right? That's, that's right in the, in the heart of what, what Erlang and OTP have done for generations, right? And oh, so yeah. you're talking about, you're talking about managing all those corner cases. So I think that the, the great thing here is, I, and I, I feel like everyone has their OTP story about how, you know, they came to OP, OTP, you know, kind of thought they had to rebuild some things and then, you know, build a few things, get some experiences and then come back and be like, oh my gosh, the OTP way that was just the default um, actually was really, really good. And then the code kind of morphs back to kind of use more of the defaults rather than building on some of the additional things. And it's just like, I think it's this process, like sometimes the wisdom that's embedded in the OTP is very not obvious in the beginning. And I definitely say that from personal experience where I'm like, why the heck did they do this? Do some research and then, of course, come up with another way. And then of, then once once I get some experience under my belt, be like, oh, wow, um, that their, their suggestions on the defaults might have been actually pretty good and I should have heeded them and let me start modifying my system to be more traditional. Not always, but I mean, it's, it's like, this has become a theme and, uh, um, I will do my part and in this presentation, hopefully share my experience. I am quite certain I won't be the last person to do this. This just seems to be like the beam journey is the, or this is part of part of the beam journey and getting more experience with it. So I feel like that's that's been happening a lot with with the most recent uh, keynotes of the Elixir Cop. So Chris McCord had his layers of stories around things that he built on that were just working. And Jose, even with the type system work that he did, he he kind of talked talked about the story. These are the foundations that we're building on, and this is how they're kind of plugging into what's what's happening now. Um, oh yeah, there's a lot that I think that's not really taken advantage of, like. Like one that um, is beneficial to my company is uh, the alarms. So um, alarm handler, probably not too many listeners maybe have used this. It's like the one of the maybe the second simplest API that's that exposed by the beam. But the whole idea of handling alarms locally with with nurse devices in particular, because you know just sending everything up to some software as a service um, that can keep track of your logs and generate and have rules for alarms is, is sometimes hard because network connectivity is not always there, but processing the alarms locally with this little, with alarm handler 
can really simplify some recovery of code. Yeah, I'm always astonished how many observability tools there are in the right. beam, especially when you compare it to other you know other runtimes. Not to make this a you know this VM versus that VM discussion, but it I mean it really is astounding. And um, yeah, when you come to the beam initially, these probably not the you know, these aren't like the sexy parts of of learning Elixir Erlang. But these are definitely some of the more important parts. Uh, you know, if you stick around long enough, that you come across to say, "Wow, this thing has saved my yeah. butt so many oh, yeah. times." Yeah, I I really feel like there need to be a few more examples. I think then, and I'm hoping to try to move the needle a little bit more in 2024 to have more examples of some of these pieces because it's just like you, once you see it and once you use it, there's like no going back. But um, it's kind of challenging at first because. A lot of the really interesting examples are in Erlang, in pure Erlang part of these things. And then, you know, that, that, and for better or worse, not as much open source Elixir to, for people to see. Not that there's any reason why you can't look at the Erlang. It's just, just like a slight bit, a little bit more to go through and kind of like get the Zen of like what's trying to be accomplished in that piece of code. If you're an Elixir programmer. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like oftentimes a lot of these these things that are baked into the into the runtime and the standard library are effectively recreated outside of the uh, the runtime and, and standard library. Like we lean on you know our, our DevOps tools to kind of handle some similar things, even though we could just reach for you know, what's what's given to us out of the box. And oh, uh, it's yeah. usually a lot simpler. You could actually test it, and it's it's well integrated into the application. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And and oh, what I did. To that is is that in embedded i think i'm some of this is forced on me for you know like having a lot of those devops tools those aren't in my repertoire that i can easily like reach to like for um sometimes just billing wise like if i have you know ten thousand devices <laughs> that are want to report to this one server like if they're charging if this if the uh if the service charges per server connecting and i say my I have 10,000 servers that sometimes um, doesn't work from, well, probably for many reasons, <laughs> but um, you, it, having the ability to have these things all in the beam and OTP and being able to run locally or like in um, there, it's, it's, it's a tool that's, that's really nice to reach for. And I think that some of the simplicity is, is both good and bad, like bad because I have to learn a little bit more, but really good in that I can deploy this like in my whole fleet of devices, um, no problem. And then, you know, as if I just want summaries or something like that, we can just pull that device for our summary of like what's going on or do a deep dive if, if something more interesting comes up. Yeah, for sure. I think it's one of those cases where where less is more, and like you said, you can't you can't pull an infinite amount of dependencies. So you no, you're effectively leaning on on the beam and uh, the standard library as like as the foundation for the nerves device. So you use that to its fullest extent, and uh, lo and behold, the beam and the standard library always come through with some amazing tooling. I have a question for you, Frank. I, I don't know if if you've you've been thinking about this, but what do you think the impacts of the coming type system are going to have on nerves projects? I'm super excited. <laughs> so, yes. so tell us about that. Okay. So I guess to back up anything, anything that help can help me look at my 
code before it gets deployed. Any tool, I, I, I'm generally excited with any tool that help, can help me deploy reliable software. So I live in a world where I can unit test a lot, but I can't unit test everything. And the expense for doing different system testing is high. So types, like, so I use, I, I'm a big believer in dialyzer and types and all that, and the type system that we currently have, the types that's been proposed by Jose are step better. So of course I'm even more excited about this because um, so long as they don't get in my way of building code, which I don't think that they'll do, I mean, using is, it will, will, will tell me for sure, but so, but if they can detect more errors that um, before I deploy to a device that might have some condition that's hard for me to debug, the better. And I'm, I'm totally into this. I love it. I love that, that, that this work is happening. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, right? Because the, um, the tools that we have are a recognition that functional programming works well with, with, with more static type systems, just in, in much the same way that object-oriented systems, sometimes it's difficult to make those work well with the full type systems. Oh, but yeah. To kind of have that, that alignment of where the rest of the industry is going and still keep all of the goodness that, that we have with, with, the, um, with the Erlang and Elixir reliability services, it's, it's got me excited as well. Yeah, I, and I love the way that it's being done. I love that, that it's, it's more of an opt-in for this. I think it's really important to have the tools to, be, to, to allow some quick, code, quick coding to happen. And like that's, um, that's kind of the challenge with, with all the types of all this, that you end up spending a lot of this time and I just can't even try out my little prototype. And I love that I can totally do all that stuff. I can totally cowboy a whole bunch of things in, but then I can also make my libraries nice and uh, nice and tight and everything so that when people want to engage the type system and, and do the checks, it's, they totally can. And then I have like another warm fuzzy in my bucket of warm fuzzies for when I deploy that, that maybe I haven't hit 100% and there still can be runtime bugs, but like I'm just a little bit closer. And can we take a, a moment to acknowledge kind of this idea that Jose can say yes to this work right now because he said no and he edited um, earlier, right? And this is so cool, right? It's such a hard lesson to learn that, um, that sometimes it's not time yet and sometimes you're not ready yet. Um, but this is, this is a really cool story for me. Yeah, I think I was at the uh, 2018 Elixir Conf, and I think Jose went on stage and was like, uh, he, he was teasing that there was going to be a type system, or no, he was like posing like a question and told everyone oh, there's no type system. That was 2018. <laughs> so uh, it, it's funny that it's, it's been resurrected, but yeah, like you guys, I'm excited that, there, that there's going to be a balance. Like it's not hard one way you have to type everything and it's going to break, you know, everything from, you know, that you've been writing for, you know, 10 years now, five years, whatever. So I, in that regard, I'm pretty excited about it because it seems like it's just as much effort as dialyzer, but you get some more benefit out of it. Right. So if, if that's the, if that's the cost is, you know, just as much uh, work as dialyzer, but more benefit, I'm all for it. Yeah. I 
I, Bruce, what you just said is so important to me. Patience, the level of patience in this, you know, it's, it, this type system is, is one example, but this community has more patience than maybe other communities are to pull in other features until like the right idea comes up. And like the other example that I throw out is the, um, the JIT, the Erlang JIT, the just-in-time compiler, like that was talked about forever. And then, you know, at some point, Lars figured out some really clever idea to actually make it so that it wouldn't make things worse. And like the, the whole simplicity in this in keeping with the, with guarantees that the beam wants to offer is, is brilliant. And I think, but it took patience to get there and a lot of things being thrown out. So, um, and this type system sounds like it's another instance of this, which is really amazing because the pressure to rush into these things, is just huge. It's, I, I really, um, really admire that, uh, when people can say no far a little bit till this right idea comes along. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. So I wonder, um, before we wrap up, is there anything that, um, uh, Alex, you or Frank want to plug right now, are there any kind of projects that you kind of want to give a little bit more juice to, um, uh, what do you want to plug? I was say there's this cool weather station book. I mean, I don't know who wrote it, but, uh, <laughs> they may or may not all be on this call right now, but, uh, that was a pretty cool project. I mean, I think, what was it, like a year and a half ago now? Two years ago you wrote that? Yeah, I think but so. Every once in a while, I still, get, I still get like a Twitter DM where somebody says that it was an amazing book and thank you very much. So, yeah, I think, I think we should plug the book that we wrote a little while ago because it, uh, it was fun. It was, it was That's a fun. great idea. And what about you, Frank? I have a little thing to plug. So it's technically one of my projects with Ringlogger, but it's not my work. And this is uh, Digit's work. So um, for our listeners who have, haven't used NERVS, a lot of the logging, when you view the logs on NERVS, you, you log into your device and then you say ringlogger.next or ringlogger.get um, or whatever. And you can kind of get a list of what logs happened while you weren't looking. And um, there's a little circular buffer. That's why it's called ringlogger. Um, what uh, Digit did is he submitted a PR up to add a, like a little text UI to it. So now you just type ringlogger.viewer and you can page through, filter, grep, um, see what modules logs come through. I use it daily now. <laughs> it is super convenient. Um, so so I, I, I want to I, I, I want to plug um, text UI tools and this one. Um, with ring, with viewing log mess, messages on nerves. So nerves users, ringlogger.viewer. Definitely try it out. There's no going back. Yeah, that's a that's a really good one. And um I can't I can't say how helpful that was as as I was starting to get launched into nerves before nerves with, with Livebook, right? Um and on that front, um, I would like to plug the Livebook project. It, it seems like it kind of came out of the machine learning community, but it has had a sweeping impact on the way that we think about teaching Elixir. And I'm working through this Tetris project that I, I talked about at the beginning of, of the podcast. But when you could say, hey, there's, here's this shape, and this shape is all these abstract points, and here it is on the Livebook, right? And now you go make the point 
you stitch four of them together, then make them move left and right and spin, and then make them fall, and then you know, kind of erase the lines at the bottom. We could just have people visualize what's happening, not just with geometrical shapes, but with the um, all of the elixir tools that we have, like the four comprehensions and the the beautiful functional transformations. I talked about stream unfold today, so. All of that stuff, showing it with the live book is effortless. And thanks to that whole team. Yeah, live book, definitely more than just machine learning. <laughs> that is for sure. All right. Well, this is a phenomenal discussion, Frank. Uh, is there any place that we can point people to follow you? Is it X, Twitter, uh, Mastodon? What's the best place to keep track of, of what, you, what you're working on and, and nerves and, and all that stuff? Yeah, so these days, I'm most active on Mastodon. So. So go there. Uh, and then which was it? Gen, Gen Social? Gen, Is yeah. That the... Yeah. All right. We'll post the link to your uh, your Mastodon handle here in the show notes. Uh, it's genserver.social. I'm still I'm still learning Mastodon. I, like, I know it's this federa federated social network thing. I'll figure it out eventually. Though. But uh, that being said, uh, like the extend a uh, thanks to our sponsors, Graxio and Underyord. And we'll catch you guys next time on Beam Radio. And that's a wrap. Thanks for hanging with Excellent. us, Frank. And yeah, that's always a lot Thanks of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs>